welcome to Destiny is Debatable, a podcast and movement that will encourage you to build your life into the one you want. Here's your host, a guy whose vision is like looking through binoculars, backwards, John Grimes. Hey, hey, howdy, howdy, welcome back. Thanks for tuning in, subscribing, and supporting the podcast experience. Our guest for this episode is Aaron Hale. He is a fellow podcaster, and man, does he have a story to tell and share, which he also does as a speaker um, in, in other areas too. But his his story uh, kind of takes a, a traumatic turn when he is a EOD technician, which is an uh, explosive ordnance disposal technician, uh, where he was stationed for the U.S. Army, and uh, an explosion occurred that really changed his life. Uh, just really dramatically. And uh, he stopped by to talk about that story and uh, where he's headed now. Hey, Aaron, thanks for stopping by. Well, thanks for having me, John. It's always exciting to talk to another podcaster, Aaron, such as yourself. And uh, I don't know if you'll get this reference or not, but it's I, I'm glad to know that you're down with OPP. <laughs> yeah, and so far, that's a, a throwback to my teens. Yes, yes, Even good. Earlier. Me too. Earlier? That's right. Yeah, yeah. Naughty by nature. Uh, OPP, I think what they meant by that is other people's podcast. At least that's what I think it means. Yeah, you know me. That's right. Yeah, I do. And we're going to get to know you a lot better, actually, here in the next few minutes. I have some wacky kind of get to know you questions, if you don't mind hanging in for a few of those. Let's do it. Okay. What is your favorite band or type of music? You know, I'm never good at your what's your favorite. Anything. Food, color, movie, uh, and, and especially music, because I am eclectic. Like my, you know, of course, very varied career path. Uh, my whole life is eclectic. But I, I would say... I would have to lean towards the 90s grunge or, you know, that 90s rock. So Nirvana to Bush, STP, Pearl Jam. Yeah, awesome. Maybe some Jane's Addiction and, oh, not Jane's Addiction, oh, yeah. Alice in Chains. And... You know, that reminds me, my my son, who's 13, is has been learning the guitar for the last year. And he's coming along. And I keep introducing him to... You know, Santana, and just the other day, we were well, pretty much like screaming uh, uh, Rooster. Alice in Chains, yeah. Yeah. Right. So that was a lot of fun. What is your favorite book or author or maybe type of book to read? I'm an avid audiobook listener and podcast listener, of course. So I like to mix it up. Like food, right? You got to have some healthy stuff and every once in a while, a little bit of the sweets. Uh, so for me, it's educational and fiction. So nonfiction and fiction. So uh, I'm constantly, I've got about five or six books all going at the same time, depending on what mood or where I'm, whether I'm on the treadmill or just uh, cooking and I've got my hands free. Because I've got this cochlear implant, this Bluetooth connected to my phone. I'm constantly listening to something. So I really love the productivity and business books. 
like uh, Atomic Habits and uh, The Happiness Advantage by Sean Aker. One of my favorite books. I've read both of those. Those are great. Okay, you mentioned Treadmill, and I know that you're a runner. In fact, a kind of a crazy runner. What's the furthest you've ever run? Up 135 miles. That was uh, this past past uh, 4th, 5th, and 6th of July. Wow. So why did you do that? What's what, what race was that, and how long did it take you? It took 42 hours and 17 minutes, and that was... The Badwater 135, they call it, it's uh, self-proclaimed world's toughest foot race. But I found that there's a couple races out there that claim to be the world's toughest. Uh, I've only done this one world's toughest, and I can attest that it's pretty darn tough. It starts at the Badwater Basin, the lowest point in North America, in the middle of Death Valley. Uh, 282 feet below sea level, and then you run out of Death Valley over two mountain ranges, and then up to the uh, Mount Whitney portal. So uh, I think it's somewhere around 14,000 cumulative feet up, as well as 135 miles from Death Valley to Mount Whitney. And the only reason you got to stop at it's basically the trailhead uh, to the mountain is because the park service only allows so many climbing permits. So we can't actually run all the way to the summit, which would be another 11 miles. But uh, I was okay with that. The, <laughs> I bet. <laughs> the, the last 13 miles of Badwater are, that's the, the world's toughest half marathon. <laughs> Because it's just up the side of a mountain. So, yeah, it was a fantastic race. Yeah, it sounds like it. So why did you do it, I guess, is the next question. We all, we, we constantly need to challenge ourselves. And for one, I started running about 10 years ago, right after, a little bit after I lost my eyesight. I was injured in 2011, and it took me... A couple of years for recovery surgeries because I was I was injured in Afghanistan as a uh, uh, army bomb technician, explosive ordnance disposal. And so I'm the guy that gets in the bomb suit and works on the roadside bombs and the unexploded ordnance, all that kind of stuff. And uh, after my injury, I I couldn't do the job anymore. Of course, I'd lost my 100% of my vision. And they don't even like it when you're colorblind. So, uh, you know, I very quickly had to figure out what I was going to do with the rest of my life and how to be blind. And the one thing I knew was I didn't want to be caged, right? I didn't want to be hampered. I mean, it, you know, I didn't want to be constrained by my disability. I wanted to get outside. I wanted to be able to stay fit and socialize. Instead of my life completely changing and having to figure out how to you know, be this blind guy, Aaron Hale, I wanted to be Aaron Hale, the guy, you know, father, entrepreneur, you know, husband, athlete, who also happens to be blind. So I started 
looking for ways to, instead of I can't do this anymore, I look for ways and just started asking, how can I? And running, even though it's of course not advisable as a blind person to just lace up and step out the front door, I started figuring out how to run both on the treadmill and you know, on the road with sighted guides. And it was kind of funny because I had no intention to become this endurance runner and run long distances, which used to sound completely crazy to me and totally uh, <laughs> um, unattractive, but um, totally unattractive to me. But it became a, it became a um, side effect of training for the mountains, actually, because when I was still in the hospital, I uh, I started looking up names like a mutual friend of ours, Eric Widebear. Uh, I found you know I was, I was I was looking up these different names of uh, blind people who are doing stuff that I wanted to do. And Eric, being the first blind person to climb Mount Everest, like if he can do that, I can get out and and do something. So I looked him up and. I joined him on a mountain climb in the Peruvian Ant. But of course, it's really hard to find a decent mountain to train on in Florida. So I, uh, I started running. What is something that most people don't know about you? Mm, I don't know. I, I tell my, my life story uh, so frequently. It's hard to tell what I don't tell people. Uh, my first job ever. First W-2 paying job. It was when I was 15 and I was the game room guy at Chuck E. Cheese. So I was that jerk with the tokens. Well, that's, this is the, that's the second time Chuck E. Cheese has come up in an episode. And yeah, in like two or three episodes. Interesting. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I used to, I used to gamble uh, on the air, uh, the air hockey and the ski ball with the little kids for stacks of tokens. Yeah, right on. That's right, man. That's good times. Yeah, it was fun. Okay, and finally, what advice would you give your 19-year-old self? I don't know, because my 19-year-old self probably wouldn't listen. Yes, I can relate to to that, because my 19-year-old self would not have listened either. You know, truthfully, I would try to convince my 19-year-old self just to look into the future a little bit more, rather than living completely in today you know save a little bit of money don't touch it take a little time to build up those really good habits financially physically mentally it doesn't take a whole lot each day but try to teach them real quick about that compounding effect of little habits okay aaron that's all the questions we got for the get to know you section Okay, so earlier you mentioned a reference to uh, the injury. I want to talk about that a little bit. Uh, what's the story behind that, and when did that happen? Of the injury that happened in 2011, I was an Army UOD technician, explosive ordnance disposal. That's the, the military's bomb squad. Every branch has them. They all train together, actually right down the road from me, Eglin Air Force Base. And we're the guys that make that long, lonely walk 
down towards some kind of unknown explosive device on the battlefield and often right here in the United States. Yeah, if grandpa brings home a souvenir from Korea or you know, we're at Vietnam and you find a surprise in the, you know, the, the attic, the police, local police are called and the local police often, if they don't have a bomb squad, which only major cities really do, they'll call the closest military base for EOD technicians to come assist. And we're also on every Secret Service protectee mission. You know, uh, president, vice president, family member is traveling somewhere. EOD technicians accompany them and clear the hotels or the speaking location or cleared uh, Jimmy Carter's church one Sunday morning, a very hot Sunday morning in Alabama. But uh, I've also I also traveled to Jakarta with uh, uh, former President Obama and all sorts of different places. So uh, we we cover a wide variety of of service uh, services as as long as it's related to explosives. And I was I was on my third deployment. I was a team leader, which means uh, the highest ranking guy on a three-person team, the one that actually gets into the bomb suit and makes that long walk. And uh, eight months into this 12-month deployment, I was just back from a two-week vacation leave back to the United States, and I got to see my firstborn turn one. I got to... uh, Witness the whole family gather around the table for Thanksgiving, which probably my number one favorite holiday because you get to gather all your your favorite people, your most beloved uh, friends and family, and the rest of the family too, yeah. uh, around the, around the table and just talk about all the things you're grateful for, and it's an excuse to eat like an absolute glutton because before. Uh, I was an army bomb tech. I was actually a Navy chef. Uh, I spent eight years in the Navy. I worked my way up to being uh, the personal chef to the U.S. uh, 6th Fleet commander, a three-star admiral in Gaeta, Italy, which was, was an amazing experience. I lived in Italy for four years. Hardship duty, it was not. But then... This was the really you know early 2000s, and I joined in a time of peace, and then all of a sudden we were fighting two wars, and for some reason I got in my head that I wanted to do something that was a little more direct. I wanted to do something that was a little more kinetic. I wanted to play a part of a larger part in the the war effort than cooking for the top brass. So I uh, volunteered to deploy my first time to Afghanistan as a cook for hundreds of NATO troops. And that's when I met some EOD technicians. You know, once learning about this highly technical, difficult, dangerous job with a very tight-knit brotherhood, I, I knew that's what I needed to do. That's, that's what I was meant for. So I switched uniforms, I switched jobs, and within a few years, I was right back in Afghanistan doing that job. 
but like I said, eight months into it, just back from vacation, there was an IED in the side of a road. My team with the robot had dismantled this thing. It was something we'd seen every single day for the entire deployment. Very simple oil, like vegetable oil jug with homemade explosives, basically the fertilizer and aluminum powder, a nine volt battery, a plywood pressure plate, and all connected by lamp cord. So simple, but so effective. But we had it taken apart. So I jumped out of the truck and I went to gather some evidence because we're like the battlefield CSI. We want to get a chemical analysis, that biometrics from fingerprints on the tape, all that kind of stuff. It's all true. And we're the, the, that, the, the frontline evidence gathering uh, CSI. Now, then it goes, the evidence we collect go up to CIA, FBI, ATF, DEA, and, and all the rest of the alphabet soup. Anyways. I jumped out. I had an evidence kit in one hand, my uh, mind sweeper in the other, and about thirty or you know, twenty or thirty meters from the original ID, there was a secondary device that hadn't been detected, and that's the one that punted me into the air. The lights went out instantly. Rung my bell like nothing else, and it. Uh, put me on my knees and elbows. Anyways, the, the, the blast had cracked my skull, had taken both my eyeballs, and I was leaking spinal fluid right out of my nose. Somehow, I was still conscious. And I was just eating uh, <laughs> gravel and you know, fertilizer. And I thought that, and originally I thought that my uh, helmet had gotten put over my face. That's why I couldn't see so the first thing I did was wiggle the fingers and toes and knees and elbows to see if I'll you know, do a functions check and make sure everything was still where I left it. And it seemed like everything was still intact. So I reached up to grab my helmet and just to find that the helmet was gone. And that's when I thought, oh, no, this is bad. The army is going to kill me for losing the thing. Yeah, yeah, because <laughs> that was the least of your problems at that point. So... Let me just back up for just a minute. Is there a split second before that explosion happens where you where you detect something is not right? Or did this just all happen so fast that you don't have any memory of that? The explosion happens at about 21,000 feet per second. So I didn't realize. It, it, it happens. It, it, it's too fast for for your brain to process because it takes about half a second from stimulus to recognition or understanding the you know, that conscious comprehension but just before the explosion i had this you know readout on my you know the, the mind detector right and it has this red led bar that kind of arcs like a rainbow uh, on a spectrum, so the 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 bigger the metal, you know, that ferrous hit, uh, the the further the LED, um, and there's an audio component to it. Yeah, so 
it looked like it was trying to tell me something important just as I was putting my foot down. And then a moment, half a moment, you know, a blink of the eye later, I'm in total darkness and I'm on my knees and elbows spitting dirt and gravel out and uh, going, that's what that feels like. <laughs> Yikes. So what was different about that device? Nothing was different. It was the exact same makeup. I mean, we're speculating because it kind of destroys itself in the process, but we weren't seeing anything other than these oil jugs with the pressure plates. We weren't seeing anything in the entire area except them being littered all over the place. In fact, one of one of my uh, fellow EOD team leaders put it this way. Every step in this AO, area of operation, was a deliberate decision. Uh, we were just pulling them up out of the ground all over the place. And um, it, it might have been different, but there's a very slim chance of that. Uh, and later, I actually, you know, in the hospital, uh, pulled a pretty sizable splinter out of my my hand, you know, wooden splinter, and there was no wood in this barren portion of the desert. So it could have only come from a pressure plate, yeah. a piece of plywood. What what is normally the success rate in diffusing those? Well, if they're detected, pretty high because they're not. It's not like these are sophisticated devices. So long as we can detect them first. You know, we don't want to detect it by detonation. Right. <laughs> we, yeah. want, we, we want to get left of the bang, uh, if you consider it a timeline. But uh, uh, once they're detected, they're very easy to, to counter. Okay, so that's just kind of where your journey begins now. Uh, what happens next? Yeah, uh, join the land of the darkness. And within 48 hours, I was, I was in Walter Reed, Bethesda, Maryland. Uh, the military hospital, and it was um, it was a, it was it was it was a bit of a whirlwind. And people ask me what were my first thoughts, and it's like oh, I really don't know. It was a flurry of doctors and 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 orderlies and nurses and army, DOD, VA administrative people there it's in the beltway and there are all these nonprofits that come and uh, these you know civil servants and elected officials that are always stopping by it was it, it was constantly people coming and going and then i i got to learn about this added bonus gift that comes with 100% blindness the non 24 sleep wake cycle it's sleep disorder where you can't you can't reset that circadian rhythm so i was not only i mean it, it, for me it definitely gets worse when i'm in some level of discomfort right like having been recently blown up uh, so i was sitting wide awake through the you know the wee hours of night just inside my head and then I just just get to sleep around four or five a.m. And a moment later, 
would be when the first nurses would come in and say, good morning, time to you know get ready for the next surgery or let's time to take you a test or give you medicine or whatever it is and I'm just being grumpy. <laughs> it was, you know, it, it, eventually in that, that sleepless, you know, sleepless nights, the first things that came to mind were you know, those first emotions like anger, frustration, right? I trained so hard and we're, you know, the best fighting force the earth has ever known. We are the most highly trained and well-equipped you know, bomb technicians in the world. And I got, got and they got one on me, you know, the, the telegram got one up on me with this low tech you know, a piece of trash. So I was mad at myself, I was mad at the world. And I was just kind of saying all those, the, the negative stuff, I can't do this. Why me? What if, you know, what if I'd done something differently? You know, the, the questions that don't have answers, right? Yeah, right. And they kind of lead you into that, like a downward spiral. Yeah, wrong direction, yeah. And... It took a combination of the, you know, my incredible family, my mom, who is just, you know, she's the sweetest and toughest woman I know. Uh, she's just an absolute sweetheart, the best grandmother to my kids and, <laughs> and the eternal optimist. She's also, you know, tough as nails. And, my, my brother, six years younger than me, had also suffered a traumatic, uh, life-changing injury at, when he was working roadside construction on a freeway and was involved in a, in a collision. My mom had to nurse him back to health over six months, learning how to talk again, walk again. He's got brain, permanent brain damage and has Parkinson's tremors down half his body. He's got a, a pacemaker that's, you know, like a, a brain stem stimulator to counter the misfiring nerves. So she, she's been through it. And the only thing I can think of when she came into the room, she, she, she comes, comes and I can just feel the smile. I can hear the smile on her, on her voice and says, hey, honey. My only thought was, I am so sorry, mom, that I did this to your other son. I felt so guilty. And she just, she says, oh, honey, not my first rodeo. We'll be all right. And it was, that was a first shift in perspective, right? First changing of my, that frame of mind. I also had a fellow team member in my company, a friend of mine, who was injured just two weeks before, Kyle Vickers. And he had lost uh, one of his legs below the knee in a small landmine injury. And he comes wheeling in and he's all smiles and jokes and hilarity. I mean, he's, he's got the best personality. And his, you know, I didn't want my, I, I, was, I, was, I was stewing in my self-pity. Right. And he comes in and starts cracking jokes. I, I didn't, I wouldn't, didn't want my, my pity party to end, but I couldn't help but laugh. 
And then he reminded me that I wasn't alone. I wasn't fighting this by myself. There were warriors up and down these hallways throughout. Yeah, this hospital and other military hospitals, they're all fighting their own personal battles and they're not quitting. You know, everybody has to go through that uh, mourning phase of a life that's changed. But I don't have a monopoly on pain. And I don't, you know, in perspective, I don't have a, I don't have a good enough excuse to quit. So, you know, between, you know, the, the people I had, had around me, my military training that just said, you know, here's the situation. Uh, here's the, the tools and the resources and the people you have around you. Uh, it's time for you to adapt and overcome because mission has to continue, right? And mission failure is not an option. And I was still a soldier, still an EOD team leader, still a father, a son. And you know, I, I had all these hats that I still, still owned. I still had yeah, responsibilities for. I, I had, I, 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 I couldn't quit. I had to do something. So I decided right then and there that if I was going to be blind for the rest of my life, I was going to be the best damn blind air and hail I could be. Yeah, well, that's a remarkable way to think about it, but probably really the only, the only way to think about it, particularly with your uh, training, as you mentioned, in the military. And uh, your story and my story, particularly of the sight loss thing, are, are really similar in the sense that uh, they were unexpected. It was an accident, or in my case, an illness. I went to bed one night and woke up eight days later in the hospital, and my, my body had, had some changes as a result. Mm-hmm. I did survive, which was the, the, the miraculous part, but there were a couple bumps in the road um, for me to get to that point. And as you were going through that, that brought back some memories of me in the hospital and, and things that are, that are similar, although our, the reasons we got there are different. Uh, there are a lot of similarities in that experience. No, also definitely parallels because uh, later because of the uh, the injuries complications from the injuries, I got to experience bacterial meningitis myself. All right, yeah, cool. You're you're we're much more like each other then because uh, that was the reason I was in the hospital, bacterial meningitis, which you know comes out of nowhere from anybody any any time. It's a uh, wickedly fast acting disease, and mm-hmm. It it uh, affected your hearing somewhat dramatically. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, uh, it was four years, almost four years after the injury. The cracks in my skull had been patched up with something called an encephalocele. It basically take parts of your septum and shove it into the cracks to patch it up. And I, I guess it was never fully patched. There was still a slow leak. And I was still leaking spinal fluid uh, right into my sinuses. But of course, uh, you know, a path out is a pathway in. In, the, in, the, in this four years since the injury, I had started running, mountain climbing, whitewater kayaking. I was speaking. I was telling people, uh, you know, audiences all over the place about this success through struggle, not despite it, you know, triumph over tragedy and all that kind of stuff. 
And then the bacteria crept in. It was like, you know, God or destiny or fate or whatever you want to call it has this um, this soldier's same sardonic humor. <laughs> and somebody was trying to say, oh, yeah, do it again. And the meningitis put me right back in the hospital, just like you had almost killed me. And I was not lucid for about four days. And when I finally came to uh, my girlfriend at the time, Michaela, who's now my wife, and my mom were there, who was really weird because it was like an instant after I'd called 911. It's four days later. How did you girls get here? Uh, But it sounded like I was underwater. It it sounded, you know, the the, the extreme case of that water-clogged ear. And it was just very faint, far away, very fuzzy. And it's like a congested type feeling. And it was was going away very quickly. And when they told me that I contracted meningitis and that it was very quickly stealing what was left of my hearing that the bomb hadn't taken, my first response was, uh, so you're... You're telling me I'm going to be 100% blind and 100% deaf. That means I'm never going to have to pretend to pay attention ever again. <laughs> yeah, that's it. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it's funny. Um, it must have been how far gone my hearing was because of the bacteria. Because uh, I did not hear the doctor, my mom, or Michaela laugh. But I know that was funny. Oh, I bet you they did. Because it was just a more serious moment. <laughs> but uh, yeah, um, yeah. Uh, so I was. Uh, it was in the hospital. I was going uh, to be uh, completely deaf, and I remember the moment when I chomped as hard as I could on a tortilla chip, and I could not even get the faintest bone, you know, jawbone conduction. You know, that I couldn't hear the chomp inside my head. And that, you know, just imagine the hopelessness, the, the loss. And just, you know, I felt trapped inside my body. My yeah. whole world ended at my fingertips. And just like the blindness had that added bonus of a sleep disorder, my deafness came with an added bonus of losing my vestibular balance, my the inner ear gyro. So I came home in a wheelchair. It was like I'd gotten vertigo. It wasn't like yeah, vertigo where you suddenly lose your balance. I just didn't have it. I didn't I didn't have that sense. The same little hair follicles, little crystals inside the cochlea that there, there are two kinds. One are the, the, the actual sensors for sound. And those, there's also little hair follicles in there, little cells that are the, your balance. And the bacteria had taken both. Wow, yeah, that is amazing and uh, obviously tragic. And as you were describing that feeling of hopelessness, uh, that that's quite a quite an image of not being able to hear yourself chew. Um, you know, when you think of deafness, 
or at least I do think of, you know, not being able to hear outside things, music, sounds, talking, cars going by, those kind of things. But never really thought about just the internal sounds that uh, our bodies make just on a minute to minute basis that you no longer, man, that's, um, that's deep. Wow. Of course, there was a, a chance that I'd be able to regain some of my hearing. Of course, uh, we're, we're able to speak now, but uh, that was because of cochlear implants. I'd, uh, my ears were completely shut off. You know, cochlear implants, they bypass all the, you know, the outer workings of the ear and go straight to the auditory nerve. Uh, but it would take over six months of letting the, the you know, the, <clears throat> excuse me, the uh, illness, uh, you know, clear, surgery on one ear, and then wait for the surgical site to heal, then get the thing turned on, tuned in, and there was a series of mappings is what they call it, but it's like tuning the thing in, and it's like hitting a bullet with another bullet because at the same time they're tweaking the sound your brain is learning how to hear with a completely different digital format so if you can imagine playing with like a sound mixer the audiologist is first giving your your brain the input of like just the primary colors, understand the primary colors. And then once uh, that becomes comfortable, then you go back and add a little bit more, a few secondary colors and so on. And uh, still to this day, it's nothing like the real thing, but uh, for me, kind of, I describe it like, trying to figure out what's going on in the kitchen through the drive through speaker. <laughs> but uh, it's way better than the alternative, pulling the full Helen Keller for the rest of my life. Yeah. What was the, what sensation did you have or what did it, what did it feel like when you could hear again? It was very strange because it's kind of like, remember the old, I don't even know if, they have these anymore, but the AM, FM radios and being just on the broad, the edge of the broadcast where you kind of hear and it's staticky and the really bad quality audio, but you start hearing a human voice again, or maybe something that sounds like music. Yeah. Um, I know exactly what you're talking about when you, uh, listen to a radio that's maybe a little out of tune or and but but after time you are able to kind of block out the noise that you don't want to hear and and maybe hear the the noise you want to hear yeah it becomes you get used to that and continuing with the example it's like you start driving a little bit closer to the broadcast center right the sound as you map uh you know the audiologist feeds you more information you start learning a little bit more and you start hearing a little bit better and you keep getting uh, better at it. So you get more information that's uh, put, you know, it's sent through the, 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 uh, the cochlear, uh, the implant. And 
unfortunately, even though the technology is absolutely amazing, uh, it's you know, the processor still can't uh, reproduce true sound. So it's still digital. Things like music or movies with multiple voices or background music, it's still a little too complex. They have different modes, say for music and movies. But for me, it's, it, it's too much. Uh, I guess too much information or just sounds uh, like a cacophony. Unfortunately, unfortunately or unfortunately, like I, you, you can look at it a couple of different ways. Like I would I, uh, quit television and movies called Turkey and have plenty more time for other things. Uh, I now, like I, we mentioned earlier, I listen to tons of podcasts and audiobooks, and that's my main form of entertainment and education. Now, unfortunately, I really do miss music. Uh, and I can still kind of follow along, but also it's still like bad radio quality. Yeah. So, you know, I can't really keep along with the harmony and tune. You mentioned, uh, your 90s grunge music earlier, Alice in Chains, Pearl Jam, Nirvana. When you hear those songs now, do you remember what they sound like? And are you able to piece them together? Or is it just not worth listening to? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I remember it. And I'll, I'll be able to uh, catch, you know, I'll, I'll, listen, I'll be listening. I'll, I'll tell the Alexa to play uh, you know, house and chains. And then I'll start listening and try to figure out where it is in the song. And I'll remember that and I'll try to sing along. I'm always offbeat and totally off, you know, track with the music. Um, but I remember it in my head, just like I, I heard it years ago, <laughs> decades ago. But uh, I get excited about it. And the fun for me is getting my son excited about it. So, I'll say, you know what this song is about? And you know, talk about you know, the you know, the artist's dad being a Vietnam veteran and you know, finding an article about how you know his son played the song for his dad for the first time and that kind of stuff. So I I still enjoy music maybe tangentially. Yeah, well, there, there's different ways to experience music than just the, just the obvious. There's a lot, you can go a lot deeper on a lot of different angles. Sounds like that's what you're doing. Mm-hmm. I, can, I can instill in my son music appreciation. And in truth, my, my whole family are artists. My, my brother and my mom, incredible visual artists. My, my, you know, at least before his injury, my brother wasn't amazing with sketching and chalk my mom painting and sketching and incredible artists me of course uh my creative spark took me into the kitchen and uh my son right now he's he just he loves uh creating sound with his guitar and he's just getting better every day now as we move into the kitchen uh you continue the eod theme but instead of uh, explosive ordnance, uh, we've got, is it Extraordinary Delights? Is that the deal? Is this the fudge? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, about that same time when I'm waiting for 
cochlear to kick in, you know, six months of being totally blind and totally deaf, I did what anybody in my situation would do. I started a chocolate company. Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> well, uh, you know, I, I, was still, I was going through that same uh, cycle of basically you know, grief of loss, you know, anger and depression and, you know, asking those same questions that didn't get me anywhere. And I, uh, I, I did, again, I had to pick myself up. I had to take action, get moving on something. And and stop just wallowing in those those self limiting thoughts. And again, Thanksgiving was around the corner, so we just Michaela had moved in and was nursing me back to health. And, and I just we, we decided that we were going to throw just a huge Thanksgiving feast. Everybody it was going to be invited, family neighbors, friends, a few students from the EOD school down the road. Uh, sometimes those guys kind of get stranded during holidays at the, you know, on base because they don't have leave days saved up or enough money. Um, so we bring them in and share our table. And I started cooking weeks in advance, making cakes and pies and cookies. And I started making batch after batch of fudge, just changing the rest recipe a little bit, doing, you know, experimenting with spices and nuts or whatever. And it was so funny because my wife tells me that she noticed two things. First was a, a smile on my face so that she hadn't seen in almost six months. I was having a good time. <laughs> I was cooking. I was doing something that didn't involve me just sitting around. And two, she noticed that the fudge was just piling up. <laughs> it was more than even our crowd could finish. So she started sneaking it out. Uh, like, you have to be real stealthy around a blind deaf guy. But uh, she was sneaking it out and giving it away. And people started coming back and asking if they could buy some for a baby shower or bad birthday or something. And the capitalist in me said, well, of course you may. And all of a sudden, we had this business. We named it Extraordinary Delights or EODFudge.com just kind of took off. It sounds extraordinary, obviously. And I've got to get myself some of that. Is it EODFudge.com? That's correct. Well, I need to head over there and get some. And uh, also, you do some speaking, Aaron. Um, Does that tie into your website or where can people find your speaking engagements and, and what you got coming up? You can certainly inquire through the EOD Fudge website. And there's just a contact us there. You can contact us through that. You can find me through my podcast, uh, Point of Impact with Aaron Hale. And of course, Aaron Hale podcast at gmail.com if anybody wants to reach out and inquire about speaking. Yeah, we didn't even uh, get to the podcast again that's point of impact with aaron hale and it's a it's a tremendous podcast as well and i've i've been uh there's some great episodes out there some great discussions you have on a wide variety of topics uh real estate investing you know people affected by challenges in life um like you have been and and the the path forward and overcoming those there's some uh some great chats 
and some great fudge at eodfudge.com. Well, I certainly believe that we get stronger through resistance, through struggle, through toil. For some reason nowadays, we become so averse to discomfort of our work. We want everything easy, uh, two-day delivery and air-conditioned spaces wherever we are. Uh, And what we need to do is push ourselves to get out of those comfort zones. And of course, I was uh, involuntarily placed in some very uncomfortable positions and situations. And while I would love to be able to see my family again or listen to Nirvana or Alice in Chains once more the way it's supposed to be heard, I am a better person for having experienced all that I've experienced. And I'm grateful for that. Yeah, that's incredible. Uh, yeah, th- and thanks for your service to our, uh, to our great country, Aaron. Um, and obviously your sacrifices are, are just unbelievable. Uh, so thank you for our, your service and thanks for stopping by the podcast, Aaron. I'm going to go get me some fudge. <laughs> You're very welcome, John. And thanks for inviting me. Thanks so much for spending your time with the Destiny is Debatable podcast. Please rate and write a review wherever you subscribe. It really does help us grow and reach new people. For more information, visit johnbgrimes.com. Destiny is Debatable is a Symblem production.